0: we are uh, glad everybody's here today, and um, jumping into this, it's been kind of an interesting week as uh, a conversation that, that uh, I just have to kind of tell you how the conversation happened this week, but so I've been dealing with, uh, which is not some big suffering type issue, but I've been dealing with this um, uh, clogged tear duct in my lower eyelid, which you may or may not have noticed, but that it's funny because I can't feel it, it's not like a lot of eye things that are really painful, like, I can't feel it at all, it's just a little swollen spot on my lower eyelid. But, but if you get close enough and you're talking to me, you'll notice it, and, and I can't feel it, so I totally forget, but then people's eyes are like like drawn to this, like like an alien's going to burst out of my eye or something any second or whatever, but um, it's, it's really not a big deal. But here's what's funny is, but the first thing when someone said, some of you really appreciate this, um, the first thing that I thought when someone said, uh, oh, well, the doctor said, oh, well, it's a, it's a clogged tear duct was like, I'll bet that never happens to Pike Weisner. That was the first thing I thought. Now, for those of you who don't know Pike, Pike is a, a strong feeler when it comes to all types of things. And so when I, when I knew I going to, we were transitioning over to me teaching in every service instead of Pike um, years ago when, when we were First Baptist South Campus, um, that was one of my concerns was legitimately like people are used to a guy who gets up and communicates his sincerity, his authenticity through his tears and, and I don't cry on stage like he does. I mean, every once in a while, but it's, it's pretty rare. So I met with a guy named Stan Ward in town, who's a consultant and who talks with people and whatever. And so I said, talk me through this a little bit, Stan. Like, help me, help me know what's going on here with this. And so he starts asking me questions like, what, do, what caused you to cry and what that kind of stuff? And so it turns out when we start talking about movies and books that he goes, okay, well, clearly, well, the thing is, like, tragedies... Things that are about the the, the community falling apart—that's what a tragedy is. is community falling apart, whether it's books or movies or whatever. That motivates me to act. That doesn't motivate me to feel. Like when I when I go to a sad movie, I don't get sad. I get a little bit irritated because I feel manipulated when I can't fix it. Like that's sad, but I can't do anything for them. Like they're just stuck up there on screen, messing up their lives, and so I can't help in any way. And so. And so that, that, that motivates, that's the, the emotions that that motivates for me. And, and comedies, they motivate celebration, but again, not tears. Well, Pike, if Pike was here, Pike would tell you he is motivated. I mean, he is moved to tears by, by both tragedy and comedy and also epic things. Now, epics, epic things are the ones that draw my emotion. Those will make create emotion in me. And so as we were listing movies that I cry when I watch every time, they're all epic scenes in epic movies. And so... That's what motivates me to emotion. That's what, that's what inspires emotion in me is this epic. And so talking about, now that you understand why I was on that topic, talking with somebody this week about this and realizing <clears throat> we have been, rightly, calling what's been going on in John 18 and 19 a plan. We've been saying a plan. And I'm going to show you at the very end of the service like literally how that, why that is accurate. This is a plan. That before the creation of mankind, of the race of man, of the world, of the visible creation, before that was created, before when God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sat down together, whatever that means, and said, let's create, and let's create a race of human beings who are physical and spiritual, who can relate to God, can relate to us, the triune God, and who are flawed, Knowing, knowing perfectly well, knowing through the before creation was ever happened, that this race, us, would fall. And that we would rebel against God, and that our representatives, if the degree we had representatives, they would fail us. And then we as independent representatives of ourselves would fail us. And that this was the doom of mankind. And that's where we were. And this epic tale is created before creation as the triune God sets up the plan but but maybe it's almost what struck me is maybe it's almost too um, clinical to call it a plan rather than an than an epic tale and part of why not that one is wrong and one is right but that I don't want to minimize it by calling it a plan as in it's just a it's just a plan as in no no it's it's a design it's a narrative it's a it's a structured out bit of literature that we are living out in reality. And that's actually C.S. Lewis and, and more recently John Eldridge and others have connected to this, have pointed out maybe why we relate to these epic legends, these, these myths. We're still making movies about myths that were told 3,000 and more years ago uh, from multiple cultures. The reason we're still, the reason we still love to watch superheroes in action, the reason that this story of a hero who faces insurmountable odds, who is, who is facing an enemy that cannot be defeated by those who face him day after day. And then this, this hero comes along, and at great expense to him or herself, at great sacrifice, defeats this enemy to redeem these helpless people. The reason that legend after legend and myth after myth and story after story and now movie after movie unite to this is because this is reality. This is actually what's happening in our midst and has been since creation. Is that epic story is being told by all of human by the existence of humanity and every time we connect to it we're connecting to not a myth. The myth is connecting to what is real and that's that's who we are are the agents within part of the agents within that story um, going through right now we're watching with Holland uh, the Lord of the Rings movies and and again you just it's I mean not Tolkien wasn't even being secretive about it I mean he was he was recreating new myth from the old myths and new myths from the old stories um, and so it was, there's this fascination in all of this kind of stuff. This is, there's a reason for that. Um, this morning is kind of funny. Um, this morning uh, when Annalie Newberry came forward. By the way, those of you know the Newberries. Annalee came forward to say that she had put her faith in Jesus Christ and wanted to be baptized. And we got to celebrate with them in the first service this morning. And, uh, but also in that picture, beautiful picture of this epic being lived out in the life of this child, this epic tale being lived out through the story of redemption in her life, also, her mother, Kate, is holding their new foster baby at the same time. And so this picture of, of redemption being lived out in both of these examples, both of these girls right in front of us, is such a, a beautiful thing. I, I will tell you, Kate, um, to go back to the whole being motivated by action rather than... Um, so tragedy, like the foster and, and adoption story, is, is one. Typically, the unmet version of it is a tragedy, which motivates me to action. Kate told me... Um, if you know Kate, she appreciated this, but... I had to My apologize for my former self. Um, Kate said that, that um, I had helped speak, encourage her into their family doing this. By one time at a, at a, on a trip that she was on, the same trip I was, I said, um, Kate, can you think of any reasons not to foster that aren't selfish? I was like, dang, that's brutal. So, I'm very sorry I said that. <laughs> she was like, no, no, that's what I needed to hear. Like, well, good, because... There I am, Captain Compassion, right? When the tragic story, I just moved to emotion. Anyway, so there's me. Um, Okay, so here's the epic tale. The epic tale is first, we have, or rather had, a problem. As a race, we had a problem. As individuals, we may still have the problem, but as a race, we had a problem. Jesus explained it to Nicodemus in the dark one night, in John chapter 3. Everybody's familiar, most people are familiar with John 3, 16. Some even know 17, Not many people quote 18. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the order the world might be saved through Him. Now why not condemn the world? Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. I bet you didn't know that. Maybe many people don't. Well, here's why. Verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already. See, that's why he didn't need to condemn the world. The lost world stood condemned in a state of having been damned by our own sin. Condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God is justified to be angry at our sin. This is troubling to people sometimes. It shouldn't be. Um, a God is a just God. Part of being just means to turn against God crime we wouldn't say a judge was just who had a convicted criminal who came in front of them were found guilty of a crime were clearly guilty of the crime and the judge said yeah never mind you can go on and the more heinous the crime the more un- injustice we would experience in that moment if a if a judge just goes like no nah, it's fine go on you're good it's no big thing yeah you did this horrible thing but yeah no one's perfect go on We wouldn't go like, now there's a just judge. We would call that injustice because we know in our hearts that it is just to punish the guilty. That is just. And God is is an ultimate expression of justice. He is by his own nature and character just. We have this in us. It shouldn't be surprising to us. It's, It's how I know that there will never be, I'm convinced, there will never be time travel into the past. Because if there was, you would have time travelers from the future coming back in time to put down criminals before they could act. Especially, for example, child abusers. They would, come back, they would be sent back in time to cap a child abuser before this person could act out on a child. And we would call that just. Because it would be just to prevent a crime like that. It would be just to stop someone from hurting a child like that. There were probably long lines of people willing to fill that role because of the justice inherent in that. So this is, this is something that's wired into us. God, it tells the, the writer of Ecclesiastes says that God has put um, eternity in the hearts of men, parts of human beings. And that's, I think that's part of what it is, is we understand this idea of justice. The problem... That's our problem. The, the other problem is that that creates a problem for God. God's problem is, we find it described in two of the different followers, early followers um, of Christianity. One is Paul writing to his student Timothy. In 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, Paul says, This is good and is pleasing the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, God has a problem because it's His desire that everyone be saved, that everyone know Him, that everyone have the right relationship with Him. That's why He created us in the first place, partially, was to have a relationship with Him, and yet in our own stubborn rebellion, we've walked away from that. We don't have any hope for this. Second, and Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, 9, "...the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish." but that all should reach repentance. Already, just 20 years after the work of Jesus Christ, people were already starting to complain about how long it was taking Jesus to come back. Um, Here we are 2,000 years later, and it's natural for us to complain. Where is Jesus? Why hasn't he come back yet? It seems like it would be time. And Peter is telling us, you need to know something. Jesus hasn't come back for your sake, not his. He's being patient. He wants more to be saved. He's giving more people time to repent, to recognize and to repent. That's, but notice, his problem is that he wants us. But we are rebels, and he is just. So what do you do in the case of, of a situation like this? To further complicate the problem, we don't have any hope to solve our own problem. As humans, we're not trustworthy to solve our own problems. I know you know this. I know you have to have experienced this. I don't know if you've all been honest with yourself about it, but you have to have experienced this, where you've made some commitment. This is what I'm going to do or not going to do. This to be something simple. I'm going to start being on time for a change, and then you're not. I'm going to stop doing this bad habit, and then you don't. Hypothetically, you say like, I'm going to buy a bunch of a box of like sugar wafer orange cookies. Hypothetically. And I'm just going to eat three of them each day. I'll just leave them in my truck and I'll just eat three a day. That'd be a great little snack in the afternoon. And then you eat them all in one day. Right? 1200 calories of wafers in one day. What could you be thinking? Right? You tell yourself stuff like this and then, and then it do, you don't follow through with it. We're not trustworthy. We can't be trusted with this kind of stuff. And it's amazing that people don't realize. I mean, this starts at, at, at conception all the way through. We start, anyone, it's always mind-boggling to me when you ever hear anyone, there's not many today who are fighting for it, but they say the children are these blank slates. You know, that they're just, we have to teach them how to be bad. I'm like, every time I see, hear that, I'm like, you, clearly you've never met a child. So again, doing, playing soccer, the, uh, they're doing soccer. We have soccer on, on Saturday mornings for a few weeks with Upwards, and some of you guys, are, we see you out there. And, and so on Michael's team, we're watching yesterday. We're standing by the sidelines, and the, and the coach, our poor coach is standing there telling the kids it's time for a throw-in, right? And the coach is standing there going, down the line. Throw it down the line. Right here. Just throw it right. And the kid's standing there, and, and they're going like, right here. just just. He's standing right next to him. Throw it right down the line down the line, just throw it right here, right, just like this, right down the line. Here you go. And the kid's going, and there's a kid out in the field who he thinks is like out in the middle, and he keeps looking over at him, and the coach is like, down the line, kid, just throw it, just throw it right down the line. I think half the game is spent with kids not throwing in the ball. That's the, and finally the kid goes, and you can see it in his brain, he's like, golly, I know what the coach is telling me to do, but I just know better. Like, I get this game, I mean, I'm, I'm seven. I get this game better than the coach. Why does he not realize the right choice is throw it out in the middle of the field to the kid who's open right in front of our own goal? So I'm gonna just—that's what I'm gonna do. And he throws it like this. Another kid and the coach is like, "Oh my gosh!" I sh-. never mind. Like it's—it's. It's, this is this is so us. Listen, listen to what um, the writer of Isaiah. Uh, the excuse me. The first, we'll start with Psalm. Here's the um, what the psalmist says about this. Um, David, and David, kings should know this. Kings with any self-awareness should, have, should know, listen, you don't, man doesn't solve his own problems. Psalm sixty eleven. oh, grant us help against our foe, for vain is the salvation of man. When we try to solve our own problems, we throw billions of dollars and millions of man-hours at problems, and sometimes we seem to kind of solve one, but while we do, the others get worse. We, we kind of fix one little area of morality, and we're like, look at us. Aren't we so awesome that we've solved this little area of morality? Real, meanwhile, some other area has collapsed into some type of evil that is unspeakable. That's where we are. Fortunately, God didn't need our help. Fortunately, the way this plays out is that God, so God had to create a plan, this epic story of his, we couldn't be the protagonists. We couldn't be the hero when he looked on us and realized you're not going to be able to help our version of help. And I think this is true our whole lives, but certainly it's true when it comes to salvation is that, is that we're, we're help in the same way that your kid is, is your helper in the kitchen, right? Aren't they such help? Yeah, no, they're not. It just makes everything so much harder. It's great. We're teaching them. They're learning. But to call that actual help is, is we're just being nice. Here's what what he says in Romans, what what, uh, Paul says in Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that's our role. That's us. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation, the stand in, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He was solving the problem. And notice that our role in solving this problem is that we sin and fall short of the glory of God. And that perhaps in faith we can accept a good gift. This this is the right answer to the problem. It solves the idea is that if someone else could represent us and could take on that sin and could, could solve this problem for us, that would begin to make some kind of sense. Hebrews 10 was one of the passages that. Um, when we were talking, Paul said first thing that he thought of was Hebrews 10 with this concept of being finished. That we will, excuse me, and, that, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest, this is, this is man again, every priest stands daily at the service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's utter victory, by the way. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's a powerful passage. He has perfected, utterly completed, filled in all the gaps, made whole, perfected all for all time, those who are being sanctified. There's a process that's ongoing of us being made holy. But understand, the work of salvation, done, complete, perfected for all time. It had to come down to one man. Again, this, the summary of this story comes down to this in Isaiah 53:6, prophecy about the Messiah, verse 6, and we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Do you see how we couldn't solve the problem? We couldn't solve it. You can't go, man, all these sheep are wandering off. All of them have a tendency to wander off. So we'll just put one of them in charge of the others. That'll fix it. No. That's not how that works. You can't have that. That's not going to solve the problem. So we have right here in this prophecy what the solution is going to be. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This prophecy about the coming Messiah will be this. All of our wandering, all of our sin, all of our iniquity, the things that causes us to be rebels against God, we're going to take all of that and we're going to pick a new representative and put it all on that one representative. This one sheep will bear the sin of all the sheep. That's how that's going to have to work. His work, not ours. Not ours. We bring nothing of value to the table of salvation. Nothing. None of the other things about you, nothing can merit it. What if you're smarter? No value in salvation. What if you're more beautiful? No value in salvation. What if you're wealthy? What if you come from America? What if you're from Tyler? What if you go to church? What if your uncle helped build the wing of a church? Nothing. What if you're a deacon? You're an elder. You're part of the leadership board. You're a church staff member. You have a seminary degree. You're licensed by the state. Nothing. Nothing. Those offer you nothing for salvation. Nothing. They have no value, no merit that we can muster together. Being a good anything will not get you saved. The only thing that gets us to the place where we can be saved is when we recognize the truth that we need someone to save us. As long as we continue to depend on ourselves because we're just so awesome, it's not going to happen. That's the the message. The Apostle Paul wanted this to be so clear that he, he wrote this chapter, Ephesians 2, to the Ephesians. He didn't want there to be any question. He's not even particularly nice about it. And this is a kind letter for general, but this is... He states it this way so that you can't argue about it. It's shocking to me that there are still people in the name of Christianity who say that we need to merit this. Well, we've got to work to make this happen. I don't get that. I don't understand how passage like this can exist in the Bible, and people still teach that. Verse 8, 2-8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It isn't your doing. I don't know how clear, more clear Apostle Paul could be. It's a gift of God. Maybe he could add this. It's not the result of works. None of you can boast. You can't go, well, I mean, yeah, God did good with his 99%, but I handled my 1% pretty well too. Yeah, he did that too. The 1% was him as well. Any, any time that we think that, we're missing it. It's not a result of works. He never fails Back in John 6, you may remember Jesus teaching about this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He has done it. He caused it. He created it. He maintains it. He will raise it up. Really, you can summarize the gospel in this passage from 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin, so he was made into sin, our sin. So what's cool is, most of you know how the story goes because you've been in church before. But now would be a cool moment if you were dealing with somebody who knew nothing about this to be able to say, so you want to hear it? Like, you you want to see how it's done? You want to hear about it? Because it's right here. It's in John 19. You're about to see how this happened. This is very cool. John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine in the hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. This is cool, this, this reference um, to fulfill scripture. Some think, very likely, possibly, that, that literally means the scripture like that is spoken in Psalm 69 about Jesus, about that may be a prophecy of the Messiah, talking about the fact that That he would thirst and they would give vinegar to him to drink. Maybe. But some commentaries point out that when John references an Old Testament passage, when he references a prophecy, he cites it. He then puts it in the material. He doesn't do that here. Because it may be, and I like this, that what John is saying is after this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, not a scripture. All of it to fulfill it, to complete it. The word there, "finished," is a word. It's it's a, a Greek word that we're going to see twice in this passage. It's it's a powerful word. It's a very clear word. It's it comes from the the, the, the root word "telios," which means purpose, and this whole word means a purpose fulfilled. I did what I intended. I completed what I planned. I finished my story. That's the idea. I did what I set out to do. So the natural temptation you would ask is, what did he set out to do? So we get this story here, we get this little bit here, right here at the end. Last thing in Jesus, before we get these last few things from each of the Gospels. And so Jesus thirsts. It's a very powerful human moment. Literally the living water thirsts here. It's a powerful moment of his humanity as he's hanging up there on the cross and most of his extra body fluid is being used to fill up his lungs so that he suffocates. Thirst was a common crisis for people who were crucified. So he says, I thirst. Well, they can't, he can't drink in any normal ways. He probably can't even, take an in, take, can't even inhale normally, can't dip his head back. He can't use his hands and so they just take a branch, and they happen to have some sour wine nearby, and they, they fill a sponge with it, and then they, they take the sponge and stick it up against his lips and squish it up against his lips, so hoping that some of the, the vinegar will go down, that the sour wine will go down his throat. That's it. It's pretty, it's pretty um, pathetic and extraordinary. In this, he says, knowing that it was finished. So when you ask the natural question, what was finished? Some people think that he's referencing the drink itself and how it finished his Passover. This was the final cup for him of Passover. That works. The prophecies throughout all the Old Testament of what the Messiah must face. Maybe that's what he's saying. These are finished. They are. The week of passion, the work that he was to do on the cross, it's done. He has borne these sins now. And to the point of death, he's borne them. It's also significant, we know from the other gospels, that this is three o'clock in the afternoon when Jesus dies. And it's it's when the temple sacrifice the, the, the trumpet is blown for the temple sacrifice at the end of the day. So the trumpet is blown at three o'clock from the high point on the temple, from the pinnacle on the temple, the shofar would be blown, and at that moment Jesus says, It's finished. The need for the temple sacrifices and the entire priestly system is over. That one works. The old covenant. The original covenant between God and Israel, between God and His people. That now, I will send a new covenant and I will be your God and you will be my people and my law will be written on your heart, not just on paper and stone, but right there in you. There will be a new way that that I relate to my people moving forward and I will take people from all over the world. The old one is done. The new one is beginning. Kind of an interesting question is like, there's like a, a three-day period when the old covenant is completed, but the new covenant has not yet begun when the resurrection happens. Spoiler alert. Jesus is going to rise from the dead. Um, and so, so that this is a, this is, maybe that's what he's talking about. That this old covenant, that I, I, and I understand, the way I think I understand it best, and this, this may not work for some people, is, is like the dating covenant or the engagement covenant. Those aren't insignificant when a couple gets married. They still matter. They're still important. She'll always be his girlfriend. She'll always be his fiance. But now she's more than that. Now she's his wife. And that, that covenant transcends. It makes the other one kind of obsolete, to use some of Paul's language. It's not that it ceases to exist and it's not important. It's that a greater covenant has been stacked on top of it. And there's a new level of freedom that comes within that. There's new aspects of the covenant that get to be lived out as ever before. Our sins, what do we bring? It is the, it's like the, it, um, one of the ways that this Greek word is used is at the end of a debt ledger that is paid off. This word is written across the bottom. It's finished. It's done. It's paid off. It's complete. What do we bring? It's amazing to me that people will still say this. And I, I don't hear it often, but every once in a while I still do when someone will say, yeah, but you don't know my sin. And you don't know how bad I've been. You don't know the stuff I've done. And granted, I may not. Although, I'll honestly tell you as a therapist, I don't think you'll shock me. Um, I've done counseling with not just victims, but victimizers many times. People who have performed really evil, wicked acts on other people. I don't don't know that I'm going to be shocked. But here's the thing. It doesn't make any difference whether I know your sin. What difference would that make? (laughs) The question what you're really claiming is to go, I can't be saved because God doesn't know my sin. God doesn't understand my sin. If God knew how bad I'd been, He would not offer to save me. Really? I submit that Jesus Christ knows more about your sin than you ever will. He paid for it. He's already suffered for it. He's felt whatever guilt and pain and trauma that even your sins against other people have created for you and for them He's faced that. He's felt that. He's experienced God's wrath poured out fully on that. He understands our sin in ways we can't possibly understand it and says, I want you to come to me. So the idea that we would go, but my sin's so impressive. That's just pride and a weird version of it. No, you're not. I promise you, your sin isn't impressive to him. He's seen it before, and he's experienced the guilt of it. Or worse, that we don't need it. That our righteousness is such that we don't need it. I'm I'm you know what? I'm a good person. That's the most common answer you get. Why would God? I'm a good person. Really? Again, really? I mean, do you know you at all? So you're saying all these mixed motives that you have. The fact that you don't ever do anything with perfectly pure motives, that doesn't trouble you at all? That you, you're, it, what, if, what if you only get pass-fail credit on this stuff, and that if you don't have perfectly pure motives, then you get zero points of credit? What if the God's standard for righteousness is himself? You feel like you're doing all right there? You got God-like divinity type of righteousness? It isn't enough because it's incomplete. Our righteousness is incomplete. Instead, we get this line in John 19, verse 30. One of my top three or four, I think, most significant lines in all of human history. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. This is as complete a statement as can be stated. It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. We'll comment on that probably next week, but notice once again... No one took his spirit from him. He gave it. Notice how he is in control at this moment. He said, he bowed, he gave, he finished. No one forced this on him. This is the invitation that we're going to practice today. We reverse the order because we want you to have significant time through singing as others are singing, as through praying, to have time to wrestle with this gospel. None of us don't, how can I say it this way? None of us don't need to wrestle. We all need to wrestle with the gospel. If you're a follower of Jesus, and you have been for many, many years, you need to wrestle with the gospel. We all do. If you don't know him at all, if you've never met him, or in your pride and your stiff-necked attitude you have thought you had it all made, you need to wrestle with the gospel. Wherever you are, we need to wrestle with this gospel. So what we're going to do, John's going to come up and, the, and his team's going to come up a band, and they're going to lead us through three or four songs. But they're all meant to be songs of invitation. They're songs to worship. They're songs to engage with who God is and to wrestle with the gospel in our own hearts. But that's what we're going to be doing. And so if you, at any point, if you need to pray where you are, if you need to go find someone else and talk to them, if you want to come up here and talk to me or somebody else up here and have us pray with you, then I hope you'll do that sometime during these songs. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ and realized, you know what, I get it, today is the day of salvation, then I would, I would love to pray with you up here. And this also applies if you've gone through our Welcome Home team and you've talked to Lance and the other people who, who talk through becoming a member and you want to join. You could do that during these, these three or four songs as well. Come up and, and we'll take care of that too. My prayer is that you will now have significant time. That's what we planned on. You'll have significant time to engage with the Holy Spirit about His gospel. Pray with me. Father, we're so grateful for the work of Your Son. We couldn't start it and He finished it. Thank you, Father, for the work of your Son to finish what we needed finished to solve our problem. To come up with a plan and then to live out that plan in such a powerful way. I pray that we will live lives as though the work of Jesus Christ is finished. Help us to live lives that model that exact thing. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.